So today, uh, I was, when I was working on the sermon, I spoke to the ladies in the office. I said, I'm really nervous about this. Uh, we're, I'm just, I'm stressed out. I'm afraid, today, you know, we're, I'm going to be walking on, on the edge of heresy. And so I'm obviously a little bit stressed because this is an Orthodox Bible church. And so I'm a little bit afraid that people are going to notice and that I'll get, you know, kicked out or excommunicated, whatever we do here. Um, and so I, wanna, I want to preface this sermon with a, a little bit of a warning. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, the angelic doctor, he actually has a doctrine. Uh, he makes a doctrine in the Summa Theologica where he says, Whatever you say about God, there are an infinite number of things you've left out. So when I say God is good, um, that's true. It's, a true. it's true speech about God. God is good. But what I've left out in that statement is inexhaustible. It cannot be counted. The number of things that are true about God that uh, I can't, that I haven't said. Martin Luther, the great Protestant Reformation theologian, took up something of, of uh, Thomas's theme when he introduced what he called the theology of the cross. At the time uh, of, the, of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church uh, pronounced largely what was called the theology of glory. It was this belief that everything having to do with God was victorious and successful. And Martin Luther said, yes, that's true, except that when you read the scriptures, you find out that we're not just worshiping the God of the glory, but also the God of the cross. So everything you say about God's glory has to be mediated, has to be uh, counterpointed with something about the God who suffers. In fact, Martin Luther says God's glory is suffering, which is insane. I wanted to preface this sermon by saying that today we're going to talk about things that are high. Uh, Psalm 139, uh, the psalmist is reflecting on the way that God knows us deeply. And he says, It is high, I cannot attain it. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Lloyd, Monica, do you remember back in youth group, we used to sing that song. It is high. Oh, Cassie's not allowed to sing either, am I? Okay. The point being that when God does things, we can only get close. We can reach and we can, we can speak to it and, and we can speak true things, but the things that we say are always provisional and they are never complete. The task of theology never ends because God's goodness, majesty, love, glory, honor, Victory, it, we can never exhaust what we can say that's true about God. And the reason that we, as a Bible church, use the scriptures to speak about God is so that we don't err and say things that are false about God. We keep the scriptures first and foremost to protect us as we try to come up with new ways to speak about God. And today we're going to be talking about things that God feels which is, I was telling the ladies in the office, I was like, how do you talk about what God feels? When, God's, when we say God's angry, yeah, there's some analogy between our experience of anger and whatever it is that God experiences, but we're talking about the infinite, eternal creator of the universe. The word anger doesn't, 
It, it's, it's just a, it's, it's sort of like a small arrow shot up that hits one small part of this giant elephant of what would be how, whatever it is that God ex- experiences. Even saying experiences, that's a present tense verb talking about something we do now. We're talking about the God of the universe who is from everlasting to everlasting. To say that God thinks or loves now, what does now even mean for the God of the universe? And so in some ways, this sermon is a counterpoint to a sermon I gave a couple months ago where we talked about the way that God wants us to increase our speech about him, to use new concepts, new ideas. That uh, in Hosea, God specifically tells the Israelites, he says, I'm tired of you calling me Lord, Master. I want you to start calling me Husband. And the idea was, by changing our language about God from Lord to husband, the Israelites would think of God in a new way, a new true way. And so the the sermon was to say, expand your language, expand your concepts about God, always referring to the scriptures, of course, but changing the way you think about God, because God's bigger than you thought. This is the counterpoint to that message, this, this warning, this preface, saying, be careful. When you think you've got it, when you think you've captured God, you haven't. When you think you've understood God, you're deceiving yourself. J.K. Chesterton, the uh, famous, I think he's still famous, Roman Catholic uh, novelist, has a book called The Man Who Was Thursday. Has anyone read this? Man Who Was Thursday? Oh, man. I, I really am a nerd. Uh, I was talking to uh, Leith State. On Friday, and I was like, don't you do anything that's nerdy? He's like, nope. Well, okay, well, that's good. <laughs> Must be nice. <laughs> be so popular, good looking. G.K. <laughs> Chesterton, in, in this book, The Man Who Was Thursday, it's sort of a mystery novel of sorts. And in the book, um, there's this group of people who are trying to uncover a conspiracy, and they realize that the leader of the conspiracy is a man who calls himself the man, the Thursday. He names himself Thursday, right? There's all these conspirators, one for each day of the week, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And Thursday, they realize, is that is the, he's the lead conspirator. And so everybody is on this chase to get the conspirator. And the end of the book, the last 20 pages or so, is this chase that they have. And every time they show up at the place they know he is, they see him for a second and poof, he's gone. He just disappears. And so they follow him to another place. And they, and they, try, and they, they get to him and poof, he's gone. And finally, finally they've given up. They said, we cannot find the man who was Thursday. He has eluded us. He is too quick. At which point they receive an invitation to a party. And there at the party is a long table. And the man who was Thursday, Thursday is sitting there at the table. And he says, welcome, come, eat with me. And so they come and they break bread and they, they drink wine together. And, and then they say, ah, we finally got him. And they look over and he's gone again. And of course, this is a metaphor for the way that we think about God. Uh, Chesterton, Thursday is Chesterton's... Um, Symbol for God in the book. And we chase after God, and we chase after God, and every time we seize him, every time we think we have him, poof, he's gone. But then, then we open our ears, and we're beckoned to the scriptures, and we enter into the scriptures, and we break bread, and we drink the cup together, and he's there. But what we have to be aware of is saying, I've got you now, God. 
The moment we do that, and it's a human thing to do, he'll be gone again. So, I will say things that don't make a ton of sense in the sermon. Know that we are only, we're, we're casting our, our, our hooks deep. Did you, did you get the, the two-page majesty? Uh, the reason I would, I would hope that you would uh, read along, I've, uh, I've chosen to um, go with uh, the NRSV this week. It's the closest to what I think is a, um, that's really faithful to the actual text, but at the same time has uh, some of the, some of the, the glosses in the language that, are, uh, that make it easier for us to understand uh, what the psalmist is getting at. And you'll notice uh, any place in brackets is where I've uh, sort of done my own kind of gloss, um, and I'll, I'll talk about those as we go through. Normally, I would ask you to stand. This is a long psalm, 35 verses. How about this? We'll start standing, and whenever you tire out, you just sit down voluntarily, and we'll, we'll, see, we'll see who the first one to go down is. All right, please stand. Let's do this. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, O Yahweh, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, wrapped in light as with a garment. You stretch out the heavens like a tent. You set the beams of your chambers on the waters. You make the clouds your chariot. You ride on the clouds' wings, and you make winds your messengers. Fire and flame are your ministers. You set the earth on foundations so that it will never be shaken. You cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they flee. At the sound of your thunder, they take to flight. They rose up to the mountains, ran down to the valleys, to the point that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so they, may, they might not ever again cover the earth. And then, Yahweh God, you make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills, giving drink to every wild animal. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. By the streams, the birds of the air have their habitation. They sing among the, ban- the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. And then, Yahweh God, you cause the grass to grow for cattle, plants for people to use, to bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the human heart, oil to make the face shine, and bread to strengthen the human heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has its home in their fir trees. The high mountains are for wild goats, the rocks are refuge for conies. You've made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness, it's night, when all the animals of the forest come creeping out. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. But when the sun rises, they would draw, lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work and to their labor until the evening. Oh, Yahweh God, how wildly various, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Yonder is the sea, great and wide, creeping things innumerable are there, living things, both small and great. And look, there go the ships and Leviathan that you formed to frolic, to sport, to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they're dismayed. When you take away their spirit, their breath, they die and return to their dust. But then when you send forth your spirit, they are re- or just created, and you renew the face of the ground. 
May, the glory, may Yahweh's glory endure forever. May the Lord find happiness and joy in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to Yahweh as long as I live. I will praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no, no more. Bless Yahweh, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord. Please sit. Did anyone, no one went down? So last week I tried to, I pretended like I was really smart and I used a bunch of uh, Greek words, hedon, hedonic, eudaimonic, eschatological, to describe the various types of happiness that we as Christians experience in our life. Hedonic happiness, the happiness of pleasure, enjoying a nice piece of art, having a delicious steak, dancing in the streets while singing, what's the song Ferris sings? Twist and shout. Dancing in the street, singing Twist and Shout with all of your Irish friends. That's hedonic happiness. Eudaimonic happiness, the happiness of the flourishing, the good life. The life of success, of prosperity. The life where, when, within which you cultivate the virtues, integrity, honor, goodness, and in Christianity, faith, hope, and love. The life characterized by flourishing within a community that is also flourishing. Where everyone around you, your family, your friends, they also Partake in the good life, eudaimonic happiness. And then the final one, eschatological happiness, the happiness of the end, the happiness of knowing that even the trials of this life are, first off, they're not permanent, and second, that God has shown a way that our suffering does not have to be pointless. That we, like the prophets, like the revolutionaries of the Maccabees' time, like Jesus Christ himself, like the apostles, when we suffer, for the name, it matters. There's a point. And so we can rejoice when we look back at that suffering. It, Jesus says, sing, shout, jump for joy. Great is your reward in heaven, in Luke 6. Well, human happiness is one thing. God's happiness is something categorically different. And yet, as we'll see, our happiness parallels or is drawn in analogy from his. This psalm is amazing. I mean, wow. What kind of God does this psalm imagine? Uh, in the Enlightenment time, uh, people like to think of God as a watchmaker, right? God is... He, he's got his, his magnifying glasses on and he's, he's tinkering to make sure that everything fits just perfectly so that the world is essentially a, a, like a clock. It, it, it runs by these immutable laws that never change and that, honestly, a lot of the Enlightenment philosophers thought and now materialists do, that if you know the, what's happening in one moment, you can apply the laws of physics or whatever and you will know what happens in the second moment. And this, for the Enlightenment philosophers, was a proof that God existed because someone had to design the whole thing. And you've heard probably uh, different types of uh, arguments for the existence of God following from design. And this doesn't overturn any of those in any way. But I want to suggest to you that the, Psalm, the, the God of Psalm 104 is not a watchmaker. The, the God of Psalm 104 has, a, has struck a kind of balance 
between order and creativity. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, one, the sun and the moon. God set them up so the sun and the moon know their time and place. Yes? There's a, there's a cycle that, that's there that we can expect. You know that at nighttime, if you wait long enough, the sun will come back up. You know that if the sun's up, if you wait long enough, the moon will come out. And even beyond that, the, the, the natural order of things, the creatures of the world, the creatures of the earth, they, they kind of function according to this light and dark scheme. So that human beings, we do our work during the day. And then you saw the forest creatures uh, creep out at night, right? So the forest creatures, they have their, their time where they can go and, I guess, eat other creatures. <laughs> That's what they do. Uh, so, th- so there's an order to it, Yes. But at the same time, no day sees the same forest creatures coming out and finding a catch. No, or no night sees the same forest creatures getting a catch. No day sees human beings doing exactly the same thing. There is a kind of uh, creativity, uh, something that we don't, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. We have, a, we have a, a basic picture, but we don't know exactly how things are going to turn out. Another example would be um, the way that, uh, in verse 9, you set a boundary that they may not pass. They is the waters. Right? And we think of that boundary as the shore. Right? So we know that there's a place up to which point the water will come, and it won't go past that. And that kind of keeps us safe. At the same time, we don't always know exactly where the water is going to be. Moreover, occasionally, on occasion, there's a storm that happens, and the water goes even farther than we could have expected, and, and then goes back. So there's an order, a set boundary, but within that boundary, there's a kind of creativity, a kind of, what would they call it now? Indeterminacy. Yeah, physics! Right? Uh, we, we don't, we, we, even if you know exactly the situation, oh, here we go, philosopher nerd, at time t, you cannot predict exactly the state of time t plus one. You have a good idea, but you don't know exactly how things are going to be. It's because God is not exactly like a watchmaker. He's more like a really artistic architect, right? God's, God's got a, a sense for order, but at the same time, he wants great beauty. Many of us have marveled over the years at the building that Glenn has designed for us. Glenn, thank you. Truly, truly nothing... For me, I, I don't care about the Metropolitan Institute of Art. I come to this campus and I look at the building you designed and I am awed by its beauty, its functionality. Thank you. Thank you. But that's exactly the way, the way God it. He's, he's thinking about there, there needs to be functionality, there needs to be um, a kind of order to everything, but at the same time there needs to be beauty, there needs to be the, the possibility of what we call flourishing, of, of, of change, of, cha- uh, of indeterminacy. We don't know exactly how it's going to work, but it will work. This is why in uh, verse 24, I've changed the word, usually it's translated manifold, partially because I don't know what that means. Secondly, because I think wildly various gets more of a sense of the psalmist's um, just mind-blownness at, at, at looking at the world. It's so amazing how many different animals and, 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 and uh, plants the psalmist brings out. I mean, we've got, we've got conies, which apparently is a rabbit. I thought it was a type of bird. I don't know why. They got conies. We've got wild goats. We've got donkeys. We've got cows. We've got 
creatures of the forest. There's all these different types and various things in the world. What kind of God would do that? Not, not the God of, of tinkering with the watch, but the God who, who is the artistic architect, who paints with broad strokes, but does it just right. Another thing that's interesting about this God, this God is not a safe God. Notice that the psalmist does not pretend as though the world is not dangerous. Right? You know, young lions roar for their prey, and presumably they often catch it. Um, you know, Leviathan is out there in the, in, the, in the deep. We don't know exactly what Leviathan might be. It might be like, you know, the Loch Ness Monster. Maybe um, people had seen I got leftover dinosaurs. Maybe it's a really big shark, uh, a whale perhaps. We don't know, but the point is Leviathan's dangerous. Leviathan, when he, uh, Leviathan shows up in Scripture, in the Psalms, and particularly in Job, the idea is that this creature is really dangerous to human beings. You do not want to, to, you don't want to get involved with Leviathan. It's a dangerous world. It's, it's not, it's not, what, I don't want to say it's not perfect. I don't want to say it's not good. Because it's both of those things. But that doesn't mean it's safe. So we have a God who's, who's perfect and good, but also not safe. This is a creation that frolics. Uh, in verse 26, Leviathan. It's a very interesting word that's used to describe how Leviathan is, works in the ocean. It's the same word that is used of wisdom in the Proverbs, the way that Lady Wisdom um, dances and performs, plays before God. And there's this sense that, that God is, is um, it's in the image, God's like this king, and, and she's like this court minister who's, who's endlessly entertaining and she plays, and God, and God laughs and enjoys the, the surprising and exciting things that she does. That's kind of the image that we get of play. Well, Leviathan does the same thing in the water. You can see him. He's running around doing flips, you know, chasing around things. Very deep, far away from us. Which is strange. Normally when we encounter Leviathan or, you know, Loch Ness Monster, we're supposed to be afraid, yes? The psalmist is not afraid. This, this is not a scary bogey, bogeyman. This is boogeyman, bogeyman. This is Leviathan who's formed to play in the waters. Well, the reason that we don't have to worry about Leviathan is because he's in the water and God has set boundaries that they may not pass. Right? As long as we stay on the shore, we're okay. Unless, unless there's a Sharknado. You guys have heard about this, right? I mean, wow. We, the Emmy nominations haven't come out yet. But we're strongly anticipating Sharknado. It sounds... Okay, if you haven't heard of it, it's a really amazing movie on the Sci-Fi Channel where apparently there's a tornado that goes out into the ocean and it pulls up a large part of the ocean that has sharks in it. And then it goes back, the tornado does, back to the land and I guess sucks up people who are then able to combat the sharks in the tornado, in the water. Really, um, really top-shelf stuff there. People, 
<laughs> and people say Hollywood's out of ideas. Uh, <laughs> I actually read an article of Popular Mechanics where it was like, is a Sharknado possible? Right? It was like, hey, could it happen? And the guys in Popular Mechanics said, well, I guess it's possible in the sense that anything's possible. But the, it, it's about as likely as, what, I don't know, catching a star. You know, it's like there's no way that you... Guys, you don't have to worry about the Sharknado. Likewise, you don't have to worry about Leviathan. We can, enjoy, we can see from God's perspective, Leviathan's just playing in the water, no threat to us. Why? Because God set up a world that's both orderly and creative. But it's not too creative. It's not Sharknado creative. You, you need a couple of 13-year-old boys to come up with that. God, God's not, he's not doing that to us. I was trying to picture um, the way that, that God is seeing this creation. And the closest I, would, I could come was to a, conversa- a conversation I've had with Josh Clausen. Josh uh, may be the only person here who's nerdier than I am. He is a, he is a computer programmer. <laughs> uh, and once he was, he was talking to me about um, a particular software designer that we both really admire, and he, he said that this, this designer's code was elegant. He had this idea that, that the, the way, the, the DNA of the game uh, was just, it was almost beautiful to look at because it was so well-proportioned, so orderly, and yet the game that was created from it was surprising in so many interesting ways so that, that players would, would just be, wow, I never saw that coming. That's amazing that, that's, that this could be created in this way where I can expect so many things and yet still be surprised in so many ways. Notice that, uh, that death is also a part of this. That, that God in, in Psalm 104 is the one who takes away their breath. That's uh, Hebrew, ruach, spirit. Um, God hides face, dismays the creatures of the world, including us, um, takes away breath, and allows to die. And notice that the, the, the psalmist, right after talking about death and I've suggested re- resurrection, in verse 30, you notice I have a little brackets around recreated. I think the idea is the psalmist is, is, catching, is, is trying to capture a little bit of the cyclical nature of, of the created order. And one of the things that happens is you, you have um, your animal, for us it's pets, and your animal you love and the pet goes through a life cycle and then passes away. And after a certain amount of time, you get another pet kind of fulfilling the cycle. And in a way, there's a kind of recreation of that relationship you have with the animal. Of course, it's not the same, I know. Um, but you, you see the idea that, there's, that, that, God, that one tree comes down and then God recreates it, brings up another tree. What does this have to do with happiness? Well, it has to do with uh, verse 31. May the glory of the Lord, Yahweh, endure forever. May Yahweh find happiness and joy in his works. Nowhere else in the Old Testament is this word for happiness used, of God. It's never predicated of God. It's always humans or um, uh, even sometimes creatures. 
But it's, it's this, it's the word sama, shama, and it, it's the, it's that feeling you get when you're confronted by something that's totally awesome. Now, we, unfortunately, in, in the 2013, we don't get this as much as they used to, right? When I saw the Grand Canyon for the first time in the flesh, I was like, mm-hmm, looks just like the pictures. This massive scar in the earth, this was, it's like, I, I don't even know anything about the Grand Canyon. I just know that if I were, if I had any sense of awe and wonder, that should, should shake me, right? Because, I mean, look at this. It's so, it's so deep. It's so wide. It's so long. How could the earth have this gash in it? I imagine what it must have been like before things like the internet and videos and, and, and cameras. When someone came up and saw the Grand Canyon for the first time, no way you could expect that. Mind blown. I don't know what, what, it, what it is for us that where we, where we behold something and, man, that is amazing. That is transcendent. I often, to describe this to, to people when they ask me what, you know, what was it like in Japan, one of the things I sometimes tell, sometimes don't, it's always difficult, but uh, the first time I was taken to, uh, well, I go to school in the morning, uh, I'm, I'm expecting to be teaching all day, and they're like, oh, where's your, uh, where's your sack lunch and your blanket? I was like, what? They said, yeah, we're going to the apple orchard today. It's like, oh, okay, good. Well, I don't really speak your language, so maybe, maybe give a little heads up in English next time. Turns out I'm chaperoning the third through sixth graders on their uh, day trip to uh, the apple orchard and then the Shinto shrine, and I, I'm totally bewildered. I have no idea what's going on. I've only been in country for maybe three months at this point, um, it's, it's fall, it's autumn, like uh, September, October. And I'm walking, we're, we're hiking through the rice fields in this small village. And we take a, a, a turn to the right, a turn to the left. We're walking in straight line. And the, the children are all very well behaved. It's different there. And, <laughs> and uh, we, we come up over this bluff and then there's this, this huge apple orchard. And we walk down and there's these big... I guess Fuji apples, and they say, "Oh, oh, Tom Sensei, have one." So I pull one, and uh, the old, this old, old lady comes up, and she she says, "Oh, you know, Gaijin, that's you, barbarian." I'm like, "Yep, mm-hmm, you can tell, good." And she, uh, one of the other teachers who spoke a little bit of English, begins to kind of halfway translate, and I've picked up a few words. So we kind of, and she says, "says Where are you from?" I'm like, "Oh, you know, America, California." She's like, "Oh, America, yeah, yeah, your country uh, killed my brother at a." Uh, what was it? Midway, I think. I was like, ooh. Okay. Sorry. And I'm looking at this apple, and she's like, enjoy your apple. She's like, no, 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 no animosity, no anger. I'm compl- I mean, what is going on here? I, I take a bite of the apple. Then um, she says, enjoy our shrine. We go, and there's the, in the shrine, there's these little statues, um, the kami, the gods uh, of the ancestors who protect the ancestral uh, burial place, and the children are frolicking, and they ask me about, you know, my faith, because I'm American, so I'm a Christian. I'm like, oh, Christo Jean, you know, none God. What's that? So I, in my broken way, try to explain what we believe about the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And that night, as I was trying to go to sleep, I was just... What? Empty. Elevated. Samah. 
the world had thrown a curveball that I couldn't hit. How do, you, how do you reckon this place that you're in? The only response is shama. It's awe at the terrible and amazing and wonderful order and, would you say chaos? No, order and creativity that sometimes explodes the mind. And the psalmist says, Yahweh, we hope you have that when you look at the world you've made. May you transcendent happiness. May you experience that when you look at the world you made. I've bolded, uh, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. Why does the psalmist pick these particular things out? Well, obviously we're, we're talking about earthquakes and volcanoes, yes? Um, the Lord just looks at the earth and it starts to shake, just a little bit trembling, right? Not so much that the whole thing breaks in half, but it starts to tremble. He just, just puts his finger on the mountain and... The smoke comes. Vesuvius, Mount St. Helens. And notice back in um, the beginning of the psalm, verses 4 and 5, you make the winds your messengers. Fire and flame are your ministers. Uh, Servants, ministers, maybe like part of this heavenly cabinet. You set the earth on its foundations. It shall never be shaken. Except when you look at it and it starts to tremble. Fire and flame are your servants, and when you touch the mountains, they, they are threatened to come up and explode and destroy. God set a boundary that the waters may pass, but why? That they might not cover the earth again, because they have in the past. The whole of creation is fragile. This, this beautiful, creative, and orderly system is under a threat. The threat is that God decides to just let it go again. That God decides not just to look, but to shake the earth and break it in half. That God decides not just to touch the mountains, but to blow them up. That God decides not just to have a boundary, but to let the waters come. And it's so interesting, that that imagery where the the waters are above the mountains, and God's like, get out of here. It says, uh, at your rebuke, they flee. Right? The water is it's like, get out of here. They're up in the heavens and they just fall onto the earth and cover it in all the right places. God could, God could go back on that. Of course, we know that he won't. He's given his word. God will not go against his covenant. But the psalmist seems to think of earthquakes and volcanoes, perhaps floods, as kind of a reminder of what would happen if he did. And for this reason, the psalmist says, may you find joy, may you be awestruck at what you've done so that you don't just wipe it away.
That's the joy of God. That's, that's God's happiness. God's happiness is, uh, is similar. It's analogous to our happiness. But he, he looks at the works of his hands. He stares down at it. And he's, I hate to use this word, awed. Of course, God can't be awed the way that we are. But this is the closest that we, in our human language, can get to describing the happiness of God when he looks on his creation. And part of his creation is this order, this creativity, this plan that he has weaving through creation to bring it to the place that he wants it to be. This fills God with joy, shama. Now think about this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Eugene Peterson in the message says, moved into the neighborhood. The word by whom everything that was made was made becomes a part of the creation. The creator is the creation. We're told in the gospel that God looks down from heaven and says, Behold my son in whom I am well pleased. God's Shema rises as he sees the incarnate one. God's pleasure is on his son. God's son's pleasure is the pleasure of the father. Jesus' life ends in death by torture. And somehow that too becomes the joy of God. Death itself becomes a part of God's eternal Shema. I have in my notes, this is mad, but true. And again, I bring back the warning. Our words are frail. And to say that that somehow death becomes, that somehow God changes, that does not do justice to who God is. It's the best that we can say in our frail human language to begin to encounter the majesty of the Most High God. The God for whom, the God who looks down on a world while he becomes a part of it, allows that world to murder him and yet maintains his eternal joy. If that is not a shocking God, then we are really cynical. Let me just at this point make a small plug for Pastor Dick Foote's Bible Doctrine class. Uh, I, I, I've tried to go out of my way here to, um, to tread carefully on, on these, these, these things. I, I, again, they're too high. They're too wonderful. And yet God's word draws us to see them. And so God in some ways wants us to behold this, but in the other, on the other hand, God does not want us to, to say, ah, now I get it. To, to do so is to lose the nature of the one of whom we speak. Nevertheless, if we want the best that we can do, to to systematize, to categorize, to make sense of these these strange and wonderful things. Um, I I commend to you uh, Dick's class on Tuesdays. He does a phenomenal job of of taking different elements of doctrine and and getting them to work together. So if if that interests you, please, please go to that class. What does this mean for us? I think it means that our ideas of happiness 
need to change. I think in some ways it's, it's simple. You know, in one way, God participates in what we might call hedonic happiness. It pleasure. He gets pleasure out of just seeing the world work. Moreover, he seems to have eudaimonic happiness. He's set the world on, on a plan. He's, he's crafted it. He's taken a project of creating an orderly and creative world, and he's executed it, and he's enjoyed doing so, and he enjoys seeing the fruits of his labor. Those are both true. But there is a kind of bizarre, mysterious eschatological happiness. The happiness of joy... Um, peace that surpasses all understanding, the kind of thing where God is able to see and to experience death uh, and torture and to at the same time um, have this, this trembling awe and, and, and beauty. I, I fail even to know how to speak about this. The best I can do is to share with you uh, times that I, I think I've seen something like it um, I, I share from time to time about my, the man who, who taught me Old Testament, John. He, uh, his wife was diagnosed with multiple uh, sclerosis before they were married in their 20s. She, she said, John, go. And he said, no, I love you. I want to be with you. I can do this. Um, Forty-three years later, um, after she had passed, I asked him about that. And I said, you know, what would you do if you, if you could go back? And he said, if I could go back, I would tell that kid to run away. You have no idea what you are about to experience. And yet, in the midst of caring for someone who can no longer move or speak and hasn't done so for 10 years, in the midst of being faithful to her, John began to see her ministry to the world, how to suffer faithfully, and how he could encourage her ministry by being with her, standing by her, and forwarding her ability to uh, teach other Christians what Christian life sometimes looked like. And in the midst of this, if you meet John, you find out that he is bubbling over with joy. He's happy, he's wild, he's crazy, and in times he just breaks into tears because of the weight of the world becomes a bit too much. He is a man who has suffered terribly, and yet is overwhelmed in awe at the beauty of God's creation. I suggest that probably the only way to get to that point is to worship and to keep showing up. But I'm only 32 and I don't really know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we tremble at the unimaginable majesty and glory of who you are in your person. God, we stand in awe and we bless you at this orderly and creative and wild place that you set aside for us. God, we marvel that you in your Son take pain and death and subsume them, control them, overpower them to joy. God, I pray that we will be people who share and participate in this type of happiness. 
God, if it is too great for us, let, it, let this cup pass. But if it is not, you choose to bless us with it. I pray, God, that we will be faithful and that we will learn to live in it. God, we thank you for the stories of those we know who have experienced great joy amidst great suffering. And we look forward to the day, God, when every tear is wiped away, when sorrow is no more, when death and pain have been finally, once and for all, completely, never-endingly defeated. God, shower us with your happiness, happiness of every sort. We commit ourselves to you this day, every other. In your Son's name we pray, amen.